In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. Father, I want to thank you for the reality of the nativity, for the fact that God became man to dwell within us. And I pray that this morning we'll get a fresh glimpse of the glory of Christmas, of the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And understand the implications. And if there's any here who has not met him or any who is watching or in the sound of the voice of this, I pray, Father, that you will penetrate their minds and their hearts with the truth of your word this morning, that you will reveal to them their need of God in the flesh, of the perfect man who paid the penalty for sin, and you'll draw them to you. For those of us who know you and have been transformed, I pray that you will allow us to freshly behold your glory this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. So I have a question for you. Have you decorated for Christmas? Do you have the garlands up? Do you have the candles, the tree? How many of you have a nativity scene? Most of us have a nativity scene. Now, in our house, when we put up a nativity scene, we have Mary and Joseph and the babe, the occasional animals. We have the wise men, too. We just put them on the other side of the room because we're striving for historical accuracy. They haven't quite made their way there yet when Christ is in the manger. But what do you see when you see a nativity scene? Um, I'm sure that you've seen, as I have, many such renderings. Uh, there is a picture, I think, of a nativity scene. And uh, you've seen many such renderings, everything from Lego. saw a Lego nativity scene recently. Uh, I saw one made out of peanuts. I don't know if any of you have, have seen that one. It was kind of cute. Um, and, of course, ceramic, wood, crystal, and even living nativity scenes. I remember when I was a boy, we visited a church that had a living nativity scene, and they had sheep there, and they had a donkey there, as well as, as, well as, as people. Uh, it got to be pretty exciting when the donkey got agitated, uh, but you can never control some of those dynamics. And, and the problem, I guess with the nativity scene is that we tend to simply sentimental sentimental i don't know we make it sentimental uh, and limit it to its sentimentality how about that even in our song silent night holy night all is calm all is bright round yon virgin mother and child holy infant so tender and mild but if we leave off at sentimentality, if we just go to the warm fuzzies and the warm feelings that it brings us, we've missed a far deeper and a far greater truth, a greater glory, if you will, a deeper understanding. And I hope that today you'll get a greater appreciation for the nativity, the birth of Christ, as we look at an essential doctrine in Scripture, a key doctrine, a focal point of Christianity as revealed in the Word of God, and it's simply the doctrine of the Incarnation. Many of you are familiar with the terminology, if you are not, in is in, carne, or it is 
from the Latin meaning flesh. And the word became flesh, meat. The Lord Jesus Christ, God, divinity, becomes fully human. And that's the understanding that we begin with this year. And it is the culmination of the prologue of John's gospel. We've already looked at the gospel of John and we've seen uh, basically, he was written late in the first century, the last, last decade of the first century. He wrote three additional epistles. His story of the coming of Christ is focused on the identity of Christ. And I want us to read our text this morning. We're picking up in John chapter 1 in verses 14, and we will read through verse 18. John 1, 14 through 18. You ready? And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, monogenes, the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, this is John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. John the Baptist, again, giving testimony to the eternality, the deity of Christ. Picking up in verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, the fullness of Christ, grace unending. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, only the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Amazing amazing truth that we want to get from this highlight, the crowning glory of John's uh, introduction to his gospel. As I've mentioned over the last couple of weeks, John is particularly interested in revealing to us who Jesus is. And there's certainly the narrative component to his gospel. He tells the, matter of fact, in chapter 2, we move right to the miracle at Canaan, at the wedding at Cana. And Seven miracles that he unpacks in numerous episodes of Jesus' life on earth, but they all have the same goal. And it is as though he is saying again, look, here is not just a man, not just a great teacher, not just someone that you ought to honor and venerate. This is God. This is God in human flesh, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior, the returning King here. Here he is. He states in his own gospel in John chapter 20 that the reason he wrote this is so that you may believe that Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. Now, don't miss the importance of that statement. The only way, listen, the only way to have eternal life, the only way to be right with God, the only way to be forgiven and restored or brought to life is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us as Christians, particularly this Christmas, to celebrate Christmas in a way that glorifies God, for us to be touched again with the glory of God. This central truth of Scripture, of the Incarnation, I want it to be so impressed upon us that we are incapable of being apathetic about it, of being just casual about it. I want us to become rather enraptured with it. And I want us to be equipped to share this truth with so many others who do not know and have not experienced this truth of God. I was talking to my dad uh, last week, well, a couple of weeks ago, around Thanksgiving, and he was telling me about a pastor friend of his who came to visit. Dad still mentors a lot of pastors who will call him and talk to him, and he gets to instruct them, and he gets to encourage them. And this man was saying, what is the sin that sends people to hell? What is the sin that people commit that send people to hell? Is it the sin? Is it an act? Is it just the nature? And dad said it's not sin that sends people to hell. 
good question. It seems like it would be a good question. But he says it's not sin. Dad said, I kind of caught him off guard. I said, it's not sin that sends people to hell. The scripture does not say that it is sin that sends people to hell. It says it is unbelief. Unbelief. Even what John says in his gospel, by believing you may have life in his name. It is faith, entrusting your life to Christ. And the lack of that, that consigns people to an eternity apart from God. Now John was... John, the, uh, the apostle, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, was enraptured by this glorious truth of Christ taking on flesh. That little phrase, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you think John ever got over that? Uh, would you? <laughs> to see the living God, the Creator God, the God who existed before anything was, the God who speaks things into being, God in all of His might, majesty, and glory... To, to see God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. John never got over it. He wrote three epistles in addition to the Gospel of John. You remember those? First John, Second John, Third John? Creatively named. He begins his first epistle by saying, That which was from the beginning. He's speaking of Christ. It parallels John chapter 1 of uh, the Gospel of John. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Again, paralleling this passage, he's talking about Jesus. That life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was from the Father, with the Father, and which was made manifest to us, 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. When He begins His Gospel, He comes back to the doctrine of the Incarnation. God became man, and we saw Him, we heard Him, we, we listened to Him, we traveled with Him, we experienced His life. We saw the glory of God manifest in the flesh. He never got over it. The sense of reading is John completely blown away by the fact that he saw with his eyes and heard with his ears and touched with his hand. The Creator of the universe in human form. As a matter of fact, it resonates throughout all of his first epistle. In chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Who's the liar? Speaking of the Antichrist and those who would seek to lead people away. He said, Who is the liar? But he who denies what? That Jesus is the Christ. Who does that is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also, you see how tightly he is binding us to the truth that if we don't believe who Jesus is, if we don't believe in the name of Christ, that he's all that he reveals himself to be, then we have no life. Later in chapter 4 of that same epistle, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess... Jesus is not from God. And again, when you get to uh, further down the chapter, verses 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And just when you think, wow, how many different ways can He says it? He goes to chapter 5. The closing of that glorious epistle when He says everyone, the first verse, the first phrase of the first verse in that chapter... Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes, what? That Jesus is the Son of God. John never got over 
the, the fact, the wonder, the glorious truth of the incarnation of Christ. It is impossible to overstate the importance of this doctrine. Jesus was God in the flesh. The eternal word become human. But this is more than some cold intellectual scholarly statement that we give mental acknowledgement to. This is the truth that changes the world, that changes our lives, that brings about transformation, that God became flesh, fully God and fully human, joined in one person, Divine and human, joined but not confounded and not mixed. Fully human, fully God. Neither nature overpowered by the other. Both perfect, distinct, and indivisible. Indivisible. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do y'all like to camp? Kind of interrupt the narrative here with a simple question. Do you go camping? Have you ever been camping in a tent? Uh, a number of us have been camping in a tent, uh, and it is at times a wonderful experience and at times a horrible experience. Uh, and I won't go into too many illustrations of this. Or actually, I won't take the time to go into any, but I, the reason I mention that is because the words cannot open. He dwelt among us means literally he pinched, pitched his tent here. He pitched his tent. He took up residence. It's a... It's a the phrase that was identified with the children of Israel as they traveled through the wilderness in the presence of the tabernacle. He tabernacled us among us. You will see that in some of the translations. He came to live with us. Now, there are many who do not believe in the clear statements of the doctrine of the incarnation. And I want to try to illustrate the wonder of the incarnation this morning by telling a story that many of you have heard before. Some of you may not, but many of you have. It's certainly not original to me. It was a story that was written by Paul Harvey. Are you familiar with him, the great American commentator from the past? He begins the story by saying, the man to whom I'm going to introduce you was not a Scrooge. He was a kind and decent, mostly good man. He was generous to his family, upright in his dealings with other men, But he just didn't believe all that incarnation stuff that the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just just didn't make sense, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. God's powerful, he's divine, he can do what he wants to do. Why would he do this? I'm truly sorry to distress you, he told his wife, but I'm not going to church with you this Christmas Eve. He explained that he would feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay home, but that he would wait up for them. And so he stayed, and they went to the midnight service. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, it began to snow. And he went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier. And then he went back to his fireside chair. And there he began to read his newspaper. And minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound. And then another and then another. He thought at first someone was throwing snowballs at his window. But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found instead a flock of birds that were huddled miserably in the snow. They'd been caught in the snowstorm. And they were searching desperately for shelter. And they had tried to fly through his large front window. Well, He wanted to do something. He couldn't let the poor creatures just lie there and freeze. So he remembered the barn that his kids kept their pony in. And 
that would provide a warm shelter, at least get him out of the worst of the weather, and he could direct the birds to it quickly. He put on his coat and his galoshes, and he tramped through the deepening snow to the barn. He opened the doors wide. He turned on the light, made it as welcoming as he could, but the birds would not come in. He thought, food, food will get them. So he went back in the kitchen, and he got bread, and he crumbled bread, and he started kind of where the birds were gathering, and he crumbled it all the way into the barn, hoping that they would follow the breadcrumbs in. But they did not. The birds, to his dismay, ignored the bread clumps and continued to flap around helplessly in the snow. So then he thought, well, I guess I'll just have to catch them. Have you ever tried to catch a bird? He tried shooing them into the barn by walking them around and waving his arms. And every time he would, they would scatter in every direction except into the warm, lighted barn. And then he realized that they were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I am a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me. That I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how? Because any move he made tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. If only I could become a bird, he thought and mingle with them and speak their language. Then I could tell them not to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to safety and warmth to the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them so that they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sound of the wind, and he stood there listening to the bells, Adeste Fidelis, listening to the bells pealing, the glad tidings of Christmas. And Paul Harvey ends this story with, and he fell to his knees in the snow. Now that is a great, touching, sentimental story. And it does, in some ways, convey the truth of the incarnation that we need to get. It does convey that God became flesh to speak to us. The Word became flesh. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that long ago, And in many ways, God spoke through the prophets. But now, in these days, He has spoken to us how? Through His Son. And Jesus did come to convey the way, but here's where the illustration falls short. And here's the truth that I want you to grasp, and I hope that will capture your heart. Jesus didn't come simply to show the way. Jesus came to be the way. He is the way, the truth. And the life. And there's no one who comes to the Father but by Him. So, the first way that as a believer you're to celebrate Christmas this year, I hope you will celebrate Christmas this year, is to reflect upon and embrace and identify what? That Jesus is God in the flesh. That Jesus is God in the flesh. It should be number one on your outline, believing that Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, when I say believing, I mean, you, got, you want to get your head around that to the extent that you can. The Holy Spirit will make it real to you. But it is more than simply, oh yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. He came to die for our sins. Check. You can talk to most people downtown Greenville and they can give you that statement. But it has no impact upon their life because their belief has never moved from their head to their heart. There's never been that spirit enlightenment, that spirit drawing that makes you alive and makes you recognize your need. And then you embrace the Savior by surrendering to the Savior. And He makes you new. And so that's where it begins, by believing 
that Jesus is God in the flesh. John then continues in his gospel. He says, the word became flesh and tabernacle, tent, and dwelt among us. And what does he say next? We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, monogenes, the only born. The, the glory of God in the flesh. And I think that when we read that, we think, oh yeah, Jesus was glorious. He showed us the glory of God. But we miss the import of that. Any Jew reading John's gospel, when it says that we beheld his glory, that would have taken their breath away. Do you remember how the Jews viewed the glory of God, how God displayed his glory to the Jews? Yeah, remember any of the accounts in the Old Testament? You see, when you talk about the glory of God, there are a couple of things that, that you need to grasp. There's the kind of the visual representation, the tangible glory of God, and then there's the descriptive glory of God. In the children of Israel, when they were coming out of Egypt and they were going to the Promised Land, God descended in all His glory on Mount Sinai. Do you remember that event? Uh, not that you were there. But, but do you remember reading about that? Do you remember the majesty of that moment? Here are one and a half million, more or less, Jews gathered in the wilderness, wanting to go to the promised land. They've been crying for deliverance. God sent Moses. They've seen him through the ten plagues. They've seen his miracle crossing the Red Sea. It has been a hallelujah time. And then they get thirsty and they're like, well, you just brought us out here to die. And God, God knew and knows they're not ready. They don't know me well enough. They haven't seen me enough. They don't trust me enough. And he takes them to Mount Sinai where he's going to show them what holiness is and the holiness of God and, and what the law is, the Ten Commandments. And God descends on the mountain and there's this boiling cloud and there's fire and there's earthquake and they're scared for their lives and they back away. And they say, Moses, you go. You go talk to God for us. If we get close, we'll die. The glory of God in might and power. As we go through that experience, we find Moses goes up to Mount Sinai later. And while he's in Mount Sinai, he gets the Ten Commandments. He comes back to the children of Israel, faithless, disobedient, golden calf. And God summons Moses back to the mountain. As Moses descends the mountain, God tells him, come early in the morning, come along, bring a tablet, and don't let anyone on the mountain, because if their foot touches the mountain, my glory will slay them. They'll die. You can't stand in the glory of God. Moses is interacting with God, and he says, God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. This is Exodus chapter 33, the end of the chapter. I want to see your glory. And God says, you, you can't. No man can see God and live. My glory will, will, will burn you like toast. But I'll give you a glimpse of my glory. There's a place in the mountain where there's a cleft in the rock. There's a little hidden place, a crack. What Moses went into and God, in the way that God did, and I don't know exactly how this manifested, but God comes by with some sort of physical manifestation protecting Moses. And as he goes past the Shekinah glory of God, the tangible glory of God, the visible, the light of the glory of God is shown. And Moses can is revealed to see the, the fringes of the glory of God. And then you have the, the explanation, the description of the glory of God. As he passes, God says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third 
and fourth generation. So we have those two aspects, the, the, the physical representation, a light, the Shekinah glory of God. And we saw it there. When Moses came down from the mountain, he had to put a, a veil over his face. Do you remember the story? had to put a veil over his face because the light was so bright. It was a distraction to the people. When God would come and meet with Moses, Exodus thirty-three eleven, at the tent of meeting, tabernacled there in the wilderness, it would be filled with light, the glory of God. When the temple was built, and Solomon ultimately built the temple, during the dedication service, God descends in a visible manifestation of His glory, a cloud, a bright light, and the people cannot approach it, God's physical manifestation. Did John, the Apostle John, See that type of representation of the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ? You guys remember the Mount of Transfiguration? You remember when Peter, James, and John, Jesus took them up to the Mount of Transfiguration and then He just kind of split aside the veil of human flesh and they were able to see the transcendent glory of Christ? John says, we beheld His glory and I believe He beheld that kind of glory, but there's more than that. There was the described glory of God. When you talk about the glory of God, you can talk about His character. Every single one of His attributes, holiness, goodness, kindness, gentleness, mercy, purity, justice. John could have said it this way. We saw God. We saw His love, His mercy, His wisdom, His knowledge, His power, His justice, His holiness, His compassion, His omnipotence, His omniscience, His anger, His wrath, His kindness, His patience. We saw Christ We saw God. We saw it all. We beheld His glory. I hope you celebrate Christmas not only by believing that Jesus is God in the flesh, by opening up yourself again, afresh in you, maybe some of you for the first time, but for many of us, we have known the glory of God, but we've allowed it to become dim in our lives, and that this Christmas, you will focus upon the glory of God. How can you behold the glory of God in Christ. You behold the glory of God by looking at the revelation of Christ in the Word of God. By your personal experience with Christ. There's a subjective component to this. 1 Peter chapter 1, when Peter's writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, Jeannie read this passage just a few moments ago as she lit the Advent candle for joy. Listen to what what Peter tells them. Though you've not seen Him, You love Him. You haven't seen Him with your eye. John saw Him with His eye and He never got over it. You haven't seen Jesus in the flesh with your eye. But you've seen Him. You've seen Him with your mind's eye. You've seen Him with your heart's eye. You've seen Him by the revelation of God. And though you've not seen Him with your physical eye, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe Him. And you rejoice with joy. And I love the old terminology. Joy unspeakable, full of glory. Joy unspeakable, full of joy, joy inexpressible, with much glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. When you look at a nativity scene, I hope you see more than a newborn baby with his parents, the occasional animal, the occasional shepherd, the occasional wise man, a birth under difficult circumstances, as precious as the beginning of all life is. I hope rather that through the eyes of faith and through the revelation of God's Holy Spirit through His Word, you see the glory of God. Good tidings of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the King. 
And they were given the signs and they went and they glorified God. Meeting Christ transformed their life. This is so important. And it's important because of what comes next. We beheld His glory. The glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of what? What are the next two words? Full of, help me out, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. I've got to tell you, grace ought to keep us singing all the time. You guys sing in the car? Do you sing in the shower? Do you sing at home? Do you sing at all? Some, some, some of you got. You ought to have a song running through your head and running through your heart, even if it doesn't run out your mouth. Okay? You ought, you ought, you ought to be a song in your heart. And it ought to be the song Amazing Grace. Because what's so amazing about grace is what is found in the definition of grace. Listen to the rest of this passage, and we'll cover all this in the third point of the sermon. This is so important because of what comes next. We saw him full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. This is John the Baptist. We got John the B, John the Baptist, and you got John the Apostle, John A, the Apostle. And this is John the Apostle writing about John the Baptist. John bore witness about him, Jesus, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. John was born first, he was conceived first, and yet Jesus had always been. And this is just another declaration of the divinity of Christ. Verse 16, For from His, from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through the Lord Jesus Christ. God became flesh because of grace. The third point I have, you get to celebrate Christmas this year by basking in His endless grace. Now, I put believe, that started with a B, and then I put uh, the second point is behold His glory, it started with a B. And so the third was also a B, alliteration, one of the things they teach you in school. Sometimes they teach you to do it, sometimes they teach you not to do it. But to help you remember it, remember it bask. In his endless grace. Do you know what to bask means? It can mean a lot of different things. For me, I'm a summer guy. I want you to know, I'm a summer guy. All right? uh, most people and most of the members of my family appreciate winter and appreciate the changing seasons. As far as I'm concerned, it could stay 85 to 90 every day, all day with, with sunshine. I like to bask in the light of the sun and the warmth, and the heat of the sun. In the winter, some of you like to bask in front of a fire. And it means simply to, to rest in, to, to allow to embrace you. Not so much that you embrace, but you allow it to embrace you. And what I want for you this morning is to be embraced by grace. I want you to bask in grace. Now, most of us have been in church enough that we have some definition of what grace is, God's riches at Christ's expense. Mercy is us not getting what we do deserve. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Ephesians 2, that great passage, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that out of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so no man could boast. Jesus came and took on the form of the man, of man, yet without sin, in order to pay the penalty for sin. 
so that we don't have to. That verse that we just read in John chapter 1, uh, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes there are theologians and others who will say, well, the law is one thing. It's just rules and it's a code of external behavior. And then Jesus comes and he does away with the law. And Jesus himself says, I did not come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law and to complete the law. But Jesus lived perfectly. It's what the writer of Hebrews talks about when he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, there's your incarnation, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then verse 14, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, the condescension of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, that through death he came to die, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, he is our deliverer, all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's grace. That's truth. That's grace. God's grace. The manger is irrevocably linked to the cross and to the empty tomb. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now here's the great thing about grace. It doesn't run out. I love the phrasing that John uses. He says grace after grace, or grace and then grace. Grace and more grace. Grace is not a consumable that you run out of. It is an endless supply of grace that comes from God. And we need grace. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ. Those do not stand in opposition to one another, as I said just a moment ago. So what is the purpose of the law? Do you love the law of the Lord? When you think of the law, we just talked about Sinai and the Ten Commandments. We have a further explanation of what holiness is supposed to look like. And a lot of people think that being a Christian is simply being a good person, an ethical person, and a moral person, and doing what you're supposed to do, and not doing what you're not supposed to do. And that's the definition of Christianity. And that leads many people to rebellion against the church, to rebellion against God, because of our own inability to fulfill the law. And so some people have a very uh, conflicted relationship with the law. But do you love the law of God? Really love the law of God? As a believer, when you understand grace, and that grace does not conquer the law, what grace does is grace gives you the ability to fulfill the law of God, because the righteousness of Christ, His perfection it's credited to your account. His life, His Spirit, comes to take up residence within you. Talk about tabernacling with us. He lives within us. And what we cannot do in fulfilling the dictates of the law, Christ has done and enables us to do to fulfill the requirements of the law. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 3, 4, and 5. Go read that passage of Scripture. And so we love the law of God. Why? Because it reflects the character of God. Because it is a way for us to please God. Because the law becomes a picture of holiness, not a taskmaster that rules us so that we can gain the approval of an angry God who is strict, but rather the loving expression of the character of God lived through those who are being transformed into the image of His Son by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I have said many, many, many times from this pulpit, we'll continue to say from this pulpit, that if you're here trying to live the Christian life apart from Christ, you're going to be a not nice person. You're going to be angry. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be cynical. You're going to be critical. Because you're going to feel in some sense, and a legitimate sense, like a failure. You can't. The whole Christian life is a call to do the impossible. Isn't that great? You're called to be something you can't be, to do something you can't do. But you're called to do it through the power of Christ, who can and could and did and will in you. I can't. He never said I could. He can. He always said He would. And He did. When while your sins have separated between you and your God, He says, my holiness I will give to you. We come to Him in repentance and faith. So I want to close this Christmas sermon like this. First of all, can you celebrate Christmas as one who believes that Christ has come as God in the flesh? Do you know Him? Have you met the King? Christianity is not a set of ethical principles. And I'm not asking if you're one who says your prayers and give to the church and attend on a regular basis. And you're a good person and you're, you're kind to your family and you seek to provide well. I'm not talking about a code of behavior. I'm asking, have you met him? What this text reveals to us, what John's gospel and the epistles of John and all the scripture reveals to us is that Christianity is a person that you meet, not a behavior that you adopt. It's a person that you receive as you believe on His name. He is a person to be beheld. We beheld Him. We beheld His glory. I saw it, tasted it, and touched Have you had that personal experience? How do you have it? Belief that Jesus is God in the flesh, submitting to Him in repentance and faith as your Redeemer and your King. Now, Christians... We get comfortable with great truths to our detriment. I have, I cannot tell you, I'm a part of some networks of pastors, and I can't tell you that how many times I've heard, how do you preach on the same text over and over and over again? I mean, Christmas comes every year. I know guys have been pastor 50, 60 years, and every Christmas, it's always Luke 2, and it's always Matthew, the end of chapter, or chapter 1, and Matthew chapter 2. It's always... Uh, the prophecies from the Old Testament. It's always this or it's always that. And I want you to know that, that we ought to be preaching the same text. We ought to be telling the same story. And we ought to be reflecting on it afresh and anew and allowing the truth of God's Word to make it new in our heart. Here's the deal. We beheld your glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. He is a person that we know. And so, like 1 Peter 1.8 assumes, he says, this is what we do. Here's the question. Are we doing it? Though you have not seen Him, though you cannot see Him with the naked eye, you see Him. You love Him. And your love for Him, reflecting upon His character and His passion and His love for you, fills you with joy unspeakable, full of glory. Are you beholding His glory do you pray, and when you pray, God shows up in person, and you get the sense of His presence? Not just a task to be accomplished, and not just wishful thinking. Sometimes we pray as though we were writing a letter to Santa Claus, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this. Do you meet God in your prayer time? Do you meet God in your Bible study? Not simply a lesson to learn, or an outline to sketch, or, or, or 
a, a story to read, but do you meet God as you open the Word of God and allow the Spirit of God who lives within you to continue to bring it to life in your mind and in your heart? Do you reflect upon the cross, the wonder of how God could hate sin and love you? And it humbles you and it overwhelms you. And you bask in the unending grace of God. And the last thing, the last point is, would you just tell somebody? Would you just tell somebody that Christmas, with all of its trappings and all of its joy, all of its excitement and all, of, all that comes along with the secular holiday, only exists because of the reality that God became flesh. That the baby in a manger is not simply a story to warm our hearts, but is the invasion of God in time in order that He may invade your life with His glory, all of His attributes, all of His goodness, that He may make you new and that you may walk in grace. Isn't God good? He is so good, and I pray that I will and that you will find out whatever it is that's keeping us from experiencing grace upon grace and joy unspeakable, and that we'll tear it down. If we're too busy, take something off our calendar. If we're too resentful, ask God to grant us forgiveness and release that which is keeping us. If there's some old hurt that we have been nursing, if there's some belief that is a false belief, if there's some pursuing after an earthly pleasure, whatever it is that's keeping you from experiencing the glory of God and rejoicing in grace upon grace, I pray that this Christmas, God's grace will surround, that you'll get sunburned in the grace of God. That you'll be surrounded and embraced and set aflame by the grace of God. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who did what we could not do. He took on the form of the children, the flesh, and lived without sin and went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin that we might be saved. Father, for those who do not believe or have not yet believed or have not believed beyond the head, have not moved to the point of yieldedness, have not come to the place of being regenerated by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray, Father, that you will open their eyes, let the light of the Lord Jesus Christ shine upon them, that you will grant them life, that you will bring them to repentance and make them new, have them be born again by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you will save, only you save. There's only salvation in you. Father, I pray that you will help us to afresh and anew see your glory that we'll get those glimpses of glory and the evidence of that will be a light that shines from us at least metaphorically that we will be people filled with joy and speakable full of glory not because of anything that we've done but because of what we know that you've done and not that we've grasped onto grace but that grace has grasped onto us and penetrated our hearts and surround our lives May this be the best Christmas we've ever had simply because we're closer to you than we've ever been. We see you as the person that you are and we embrace the person that you are in our hearts and our lives and make us a testimony to others for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.
Amen.